Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The third pillar, how markets in the state leave the community behind, is an extraordinary effort and hugely anticipated by Raghun Rajan. A guy named Alarian writes a blurb about it. Some guy, Yale Schiller. Uh, Yellen, I think she was with the Fed for a while, Professor Rogoff. But I think what's most moving for me, John Farrell, is Amartya Sen of Harvard, who with Jagdish Bhagwati defined Indian excellence in academics for me, uh, says a strikingly insightful analysis uh, and that barely describes it. Why don't you bring in Professor Rajan on the third pillar? Formerly of the Reserve Bank of India, it's great to have you with us, Raghu. And I want to talk about the third pillar. And typically when you go into postgrad and you do a political economics course, political economy, they'll tell you it's the relationship between the state and the economy and community doesn't come up. And in the first couple of pages of your book, this is something you address. How important is that? Extremely important, because I think when we look at the success of liberal market democracies post-World War II, we typically talk about the markets. Uh, and if you're from Chicago, that's all you want to talk about. Yeah. If you're from elsewhere, you talk about the government and its role in protecting property rights and contracts. What we neglect is the role of the community, both in preparing people for markets, in supporting them when they fall off the markets, but also in pushing for democratic engagement, which keeps the markets open for all. I think these roles are critical in the liberal market democracies. And when we look at countries like China, where it doesn't occur, you sort of wonder, will they have the system that can stay at the frontiers uh, in the future? What are you worried about in China specifically right now? Well, right now, most immediately, it is, of course, the enormous pileup of debt and how they keep growth going without pressing the old buttons of pushing debt, still some more pushing fixed asset investment and creating more problems for the future. China needs to keep its growth going because that's where the Communist Party gets its legitimacy from. Uh, but at the same time, they realize that what they've been doing in recent years is essentially borrowing from the future. Something we've discussed on this program over the last couple of weeks is the diminishing marginal return of that additional unit of debt that is being injected into the Chinese economy. Have we reached the point where they are pushing on a string, in your view? Well, I, I think they're pretty close, which is why they're trying desperately to not do it this time. Uh, what they call it is irrigating the fields rather than flooding them. They don't want to flood it with a whole lot more debt. But it is an economy which has gotten used to fixed asset investment as the way to grow and fixed asset investment fueled by credit. And of course, as you said, it has diminishing returns. Amartya Sen is known for a tone of capitalism sharply different from the Lockean individualism of the United States of America. How would Amartya Sen and how would Raghurajan describe this arch-socialism that has reigned supreme in early 2019? We all understand it's not real socialism, but what is this tinge of democratic socialism we see in America today? 
Well, it is from people who have not participated in the growth that we've seen uh, across the industrial world post-recession. It's people saying, what about me? Why have I been left behind? But it's not just about the current situation. It's not just about uh, whether they have jobs or not. It's about the quality of jobs going forward for themselves. Do I see progress? And equally important, do I see progress for my kids? Are my kids going to have as good okay. a future as Who's going to lead that charge? I mean, nobody can figure out how to pay for this program or that program or the next uh, program. I mean, to go back yeah. to Amartya Sen, 1960, where there was techniques that were discussed. What is the new technique of Raghun Rajan's capitalism? Well, I would like more localism. I would like to push more decision-making back to the local area. Did you learn that at the, at the Reserve Bank of India? Was that where this no, that's, came that's, from? No, that's my view of capitalism, which has developed Are you stealing this from Luigi Zingales? Is that what this is about? <laughs> we debate a lot. We, we debate a lot. Do you guys argue? What do you argue about? Uh, a lot of things. Uh, we, we, we do argue, for example, about new tech companies. Why is it that they're so dominant? And what should we have done about them going forward? Because they produce a really good product but they do control a lot of the economy going forward. Speaking of control and control of the economy, let's just wrap up by talking about the threat to central bank independence, perhaps more specifically in, in India and at the Reserve Bank of India. Governor Patel stepping down unexpectedly, um, largely speculated that he was forced out by the government there. You yourself had your own issues there too. Do we face the very real prospect that central bank independence could become something of the past? Well, central banks are a natural part of the elite establishment. And therefore, there is a lot of concern about them from populist movements. Why are they raising interest rates when I don't see inflation in sight? Why is it that they don't flood the economy with more money? Because after all, just print money and we can spend. So the easy answers, uh, you have to explain why you're not doing that. Why, in fact, it would be a bad idea to continue printing money. Uh, you know, we have a bunch of theories now, I, I think it's yep. called modern monetary theory, where MMT, print and, yeah. f and finance whatever you want. So central banks now have the responsibility of explaining what yep. they do. Raghu, great to see you. Raghuram Rajan of Chicago, formerly of the Reserve Bank of India. Can you bring in our esteemed guest? I can. He's at BTIG, which means he's wired into the Oscars. Is he really? Yeah. yeah. Why is that? They, they got Rich Greenfield and the whole entertainment. Oh, you know, right. Rich, Thing, I would, you know. I would, did Rich? Oh, yeah, Walter of course. Rich, Rich would have watched all Apple. of that. And Walter does Apple. Even though the, the difference is Walter watched it, Julian watched it, I watched it, but Rich really watched it and enjoyed it. That's the difference. I, I think Julian Emmanuel enjoyed it too. He joins us. He, he runs their equity and derivative strategy, and it's great to have you with us, Julian. Good so we've had a here. massive run-up in 2019, a V-shaped recovery, not just in stocks, but across a variety of asset classes. What's behind it in your mind, Julian, and why are we going to have the energy and the fuel for this to continue? Well, the, the catalyst, uh, aside from, you know, the deep, profound oversold at the end of last year is that, uh, you know, when they do the Oscars next year, the guy that should win uh, Best Actor is probably Jerome Powell, uh, given his performance in, in January. Uh, there's no question about the fact that when you look at the Fed changing tack, uh, that that is a very material tailwind. Uh, for stocks globally, uh, for the FX markets, um, and ultimately for someone like China, 
who is in their own easing mode, uh, sort of competitively uh, more able to do so because they're getting flexibility from the Fed. Uh, the question is, too far, too fast? Uh, we'd actually like to see a, a little bit of a, of a break in the rally. Really? Um, it, it's getting to the point uh, where you could get a performance chase. Um, and when we think about performance chases that have happened early in the year, we think about you know, times like 1999 and 2000, 1987, they didn't end terribly well. Um, what we want to see is uh, a little bit more uh, perhaps decorum coming into the market and let the data catch up uh, to where the fundamentals uh, could be and where the asset prices have is gone. Is your base case that the data does validate some of the moves we've seen? Uh, it, 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 it will, in our view, but it may not happen until late in the second quarter or even into the third quarter. This is a soft patch. Um, John, this is so important. I've been using the number 31% as sort of the December down and up uh, percentage move. I just did it from October with the S&P 500. And John, down and up has been a 36 0.1% round trip. That's the full range. Full range. That's 597 S&P points down, 465 S&P points up. It's been absolutely massive. Up. I've never, I can honestly say I've never seen that. Outside of recessionary conditions as well in America, which makes it even more fascinating. We've had a few of these, Julian, over the cycle, 2011, 2012, 15, 16, and the experience of 18, 19. Why is this one different, well, if it is at all? It is definitely different. First of all, as, as Tom pointed out, the speed and the ferocity, both to the upside and the downside. And actually, you know, using our, our derivatives knowledge, what was amazing to us is at the end of last year, downside put protection actually got cheaper. In my experience, I've never seen that because that what that tells you is that it was just straight out liquidation of everything, of stocks, of commodities, of, of option protection. And so the, you know, by that standard, the, the corresponding rebound, given the fact that the Fed helped catalyze it, has been appropriately strong. I'm always really interested by what the consensus is, how the consensus shifts, what informs it. Is the consensus view quickly becoming you need to fade this strength and therefore is the pain trade that ultimately this market can continue grinding higher? What do you think of that, Julian? The pain trade is definitely that the market can continue higher. Uh, no question about that. Um, in, in general, sort of, again, starting the year, people came in underinvested. People continue to be underinvested, very cautious, particularly since the data, if anything, has deteriorated at the margin. Julian, I don't want you to comment on Macy's particularly. I know you don't do individual stocks, but you look at the creative destruction in retail. Now, all you need to know, folks, is venerable Macy's to streamline management structure in productivity plan. And they're putting a positive spin on it. But let's just say there's basic chaos in retail as a general statement as well. How do you as a general strategist synthesize the creative destruction going on industry to industry? CVS Aetna the other day. Were you long craft? <laughs> you know, I'll leave that to the world's greatest leave that, investor. But, 
Yeah, okay, you'll leave that to the world's creative. Ooh, did you hear that shot by Julian Amanda? I think you can't get everyone right. She's got a lot of CBS at not craft, and now Macy's with a massive upper management restructuring as well. How do you do creative structure, creative destruction when you're a generalist strategist? Well, it's been the story of the last probably 15 years, certainly with the rise of technology. And, you know, the question is, this far into the cycle, you know, do you have a a company where you feel that management is developing a strategy or a series of alternatives, given the shift in the landscape, number one? And number two, is your valuation not onerous? Is a general strategy, does American corporations, do they have the ability to cut costs? Or are they so tight to the bone they can't cut anymore? No, we think there's still uh, an ability to cut costs. But uh, as you've seen, the the desire would be not to do that, uh, particularly since there's enough cash to be able to fund growth. The problem is, is that we've got to clear up some of the politics Gillian, of everything. I'm increasingly frustrated by the corporate happy talk. Streamline the management structure in a productivity plan. Is that oh, job yeah. cuts? I mean, you're, you're, yeah. Is that job cuts? What yes. is that? But they won't say it. I'm reading. So I'm why reading don't the they just why don't they right just now. say it? What is that? It's it certainly is job cuts. It's uh, you know it's a sanitized version. But look at the look at the labor market. Those people are going to find yeah. jobs elsewhere. They have 130,000 employees. But to your point, John, I'm looking at the four or five paragraphs here. And it's sort of like Brexit. I really can't figure out the extension of the extension. No, it's too of difficult. Brexit. But I think it touches on an important theme. Yeah. Through this year, people's estimates for sales on the S and P five hundred actually haven't come down as dramatically as the estimates for earnings. And there seems to be a big focus, a laser focus on Julian, on margins, and cutting costs out and focusing on margins. Why is margins such a big issue for twenty nineteen? Well, there's been this ongoing um, uh, obsession with the tightness in the labor market, um, which we think is actually sort of an over-obsession. We think the Fed uh, agrees with that. But at the end of the day, if you're uncertain about where your growth is going to come from, and you know that you've got to deliver you know, a, a, a better bottom line year on year, you've got to think right. about cutting costs. Very quickly, to John's good question, are we misjudging margins as we've done for the last 20 years, or are we misjudging the revenue get over the next 12 months? Well, I, I think margins have been one of those issues. It's, it's sort of like, you know, the demise of China or the, the implosion moment. We've been yeah, looking hard for landing. Right. We've been looking for it for 10 years. It hasn't come or, you know, the demise of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. Margins continue to stay elevated because ultimately companies, as uh, to your point earlier, are finding ways of adapting yeah. to the 21st century. Julian, good to see you. BTIG, Chief Equity and Derivative Strategist. Always great to catch up with you, Julian. Is our next guest a Chicago Cubs spring training? Diane Swalk. I think so. Why don't Fantastic. You bring, her in? bring her in. Oh, thank you. That's a privilege. Yeah. A pleasure. Thank you. You don't know Cubby's White Sox. Diane, Diane Swalk. You don't cold. know, Diane, that we argue over who's going to bring you in in the commercial break. And, I appreciate and, that. And Tom, Tom is letting me, so thank you. Diane Swalk, Grant Thornton, Chief Economist. Diane, what happened in December? 
Well, you know, we knew it was going to be a soggy month. We had a real collapse in builder confidence over the course of 2018 and 20, and the December numbers were horrible. So this really matches builder confidence. The good news is in February, we're now much ahead of the actual data because of the government shutdown and the delays we saw. There is better data supposedly out there. Builders feeling a lot more confident now that mortgage rates have come down to sort of their lowest levels in about a year and that helping them out a bit. But these losses, looking at them across the board, really in multifamily market heavily, but also in single. The one place that's really interesting is how big the losses were in everywhere from the Northeast, the West, the Midwest. The South didn't have as bad a losses, which is really important because that's our lion's share of housing starts out there, and that's the backbone of the housing market in terms of sales and construction. But let's face it, it's hard to put lipstick on this pig. Yeah, it is a pig. It looks real ugly. Housing starts just collapsing really in December and this corresponding with some really, really ugly price action in financial markets at the back end of last year. How does all of this inform the Federal Reserve's current state and its patience for 2019? Well, they'll have a lot of it, and I'll be able to ask Rafael Bostic about that of the Atlanta Fed on Friday at the NABE conference. But um, it is really interesting is the data that's come out, when they were in that data void, they had the only thing they had was mm-hmm. those spectacular employment data, which are really important. That's great. But the data we've gotten since then really shows a lot of ugly data. Retail sales really disappointing for the month of December. We're still waiting on January retail sales when we had a polar vortex and a government shutdown. Industrial production... <clears throat> disappointing in January. So a lot of the data that we've gotten, durable goods orders, which we get out again tomorrow, has been disappointing. And the Fed, it makes them, until we get more data that turns around, which I think we will, they got to be patient. Then, Diane, can you explain well-meaning market economists who have a faith that things will pick up? Where does that faith come from? Well-meaning market economists. Wow. Um, I guess I'm glad I'm no longer in the financial sector. Um, I I think the faith is on the employment data, and the employment data has been strong. You know, I'm the one one of those ones that was the first one out there to call a 2020 recession. So it's not like I'm, you know, very uh, agreed. Agreed. But there. but the optimists have a faith that things pick up. And I mean, John Farrell gets like ten times the mail I get. But the fact is, the mail we get is like really. What's the faith yeah, of the yeah. optimists? You know, I have faith it will pick up, not as much as others, and I also think the Fed's on hold the entire year and will be cutting next year. The real issue is there's a blind faith, I think, in China's ability to do a 180. And, you know, China's pulled a rabbit out of the hat a lot of times, but even good magicians slip up sometimes. And I think what we're looking at in China now is that their ability to provide growth on command and yeah. just say, we're going to stimulate the economy. The transmission mechanisms aren't what they once were in China. And so far, they've been unable to. The trade issue is important, and sidelining additional tariffs is very important. But so far, we've not removed any tariffs that we've invoked, except for one steel company in Russia. Other than that, all the tariffs are still on that we put in place even after we came to tentative trade agreements with Mexico and Canada. And I think it's very important to understand that it's not just trade that's hitting China, it's China. And it's flawed model that's hitting China. And they're not able to stimulate the same way they once did with debt through the private sector. And you threaten people are going to go to jail if they take on too much debt. It's hard to get them to do it again. Diane, you have touched on what I think is the issue for 2019. What holds the key to performance in markets through the rest of the year? 
It's not the trade story. It's not what the Fed does. It's the faith in China's ability to stabilize this economy. When will that faith actually be tested? I think it's really going to be tested in the second half of the year. So as we move through, people will sort of say, oh, it's trade noise, and I'll be willing to discount weakness, which will not show up in the Chinese data, which they're now making up even more data than they mm-hmm. once did. My friends that are much better experts than I on China are telling me, you know, they're, they're ripping out, new, they're inventing data series that don't even have a base, like year-over-year retail sales growth right. at no levels. You know, kind of strange okay. to point out. This is a real issue yeah. for the second half of the year. I think we're going to be disappointed, and that's why I'm worried about 2020. Diane, thank you for the update. Thank Diane you, Diane. Swank, Grant Thornton, Yeoman's Duty on uh, Fed Day as well from Diane Swank of Grant Thornton uh, as well. What is the most famous of what's called a dog and pony show. Paul Sweeney and I are trying to figure out the number of dog and pony shows we've been to combined over the years. The and rubber chicken lunches were f- that famous. Number, yeah, that number can't count high. Pulling a short straw, one Taylor Riggs joins us from the banking dog and pony, which is a J.P. Morgan day. Uh, Taylor, what's the what's the body language? What's the chemistry in the room as J.P. Morgan management pitches their story? Yeah, you know, it's a little bit bittersweet. As you know, Tom, it's the last time that we'll have the investor day here at the headquarters before they move all the employees out, tear down the building and rebuild it, and then bring about 12,000 employees back. So that's sort of how we started it out. I'm running in and out of conference rooms. I came out of the the latest panel that we're in uh, to chat with you guys, but it's, it's good. You know, it, it's uh, sort of cordial. I think they're striking sort of a cautious, optimistic tone. You know, that they're the fortress balance sheet. They're number one for a reason. Uh, but some caution that I'm hearing more than what we heard on the earnings call in yeah. January, um, just sort of preparing for some slowing growth perhaps on the horizon. The slowing growth perhaps on the horizon, which means that Fortress Diamond is linked into the American economy. What is the backdrop of the economy that they see as they bank forward the next 12 months? Yeah, they kicked it off, Marianne Lake, the CFO, by talking about Jay Powell, and she quoted him directly, and she said that they feel exactly the way he does, that the balance of risks is harder to characterize. And in preparation of that, they are seeing some risk to deposit betas. They like the consumer. They think it's a healthy consumer, but they are preparing for slower growth. And in anticipation of that, they're looking at only 2% loan growth. They want to go up into higher quality loans. They get nervous a little bit about auto loans, some mortgages, some of the credit card loans. So again, sort of focusing on higher quality, but they like the consumer. I don't want to paint a too pessimistic picture, but typically of all the banks, JP Morgan on these earnings calls has been so optimistic about the the consumer and the retail bank. And this was sort of the first time, at least from the CFO, Marianne Lake, that she said, we think it'll be a interest rate hike before an interest rate cut, but we don't really yeah, know right yeah. now. And I think that uncertainty is sort of overall in the global backdrop of how now where they where they go in 2019. Right. And Paul Sweeney, I don't know if you missed that, but that's CFA talk there, deposit betas. Yes. <laughs> it's that CFA yeah. talk. You can <laughs> you only... Know, 
Absolutely. Well, I could do cost of capital with you all day long and deposit beta we and regular beta we, we and won't, ROE. Yeah, we won't <laughs> commit that on radio. Paul, save us. <laughs> so, Taylor, one of the odd things, and just noting that the stock uh, opened up down about 1.5% today, so I think, Taylor, that note of caution coming out of uh, management is kind of being reflected in the stock. But one of the headlines I thought was interesting was that they are going to increase the number of retail branches across the country to reach, I think they said, about 93% of the U.S. population, which seems odd. It seems like more and more people are doing more and more banking online. What's the need for an absolute bricks and mortar branch? Right. Well, embedding on the consumer. And I think that's the key here. And when you talk about opening up more retail branches, I think the key with JP Morgan is usually how they have to spend to grow. And I think the biggest part here is you usually hear this from Bank of America about responsible growth. And this is actually the first time we're hearing this from JP Morgan too, that we have to spend to grow to maintain our market share. But how do we sort of do that in a, in a responsible way? And I think as you talk a lot about the consumer and the retail branches, they're also shifting this right into your world, Paul, about increasing their spending on tech and the mobile payments. And we're just in a wholesale payments panel now that I ran out of. And you probably saw the headline that the tech spending is expected to grow by about $2.2 billion to get up to about $13 billion. They're the fifth largest tech spender. So they're focused on the actual physical branches, but they also realize that they have to increase in the cloud and the mobile payments. And I mean, they're the fifth largest tech spender after Amazon, Alphabet, Walmart, and Microsoft. When was the last time that you had a global major bank spending this much money like Amazon on tech? That's where the future is. And Paul Sweeney, this goes to the merger of BB&T and SunTrust. Yes. I mean, sorry, it's like you and me a million years ago with E.F. Hutton, when I lived at A.G. Edwards, I mean, the bottom line is if you don't spend the money on tech and spend it correctly, you lose. Yeah, and it's consistent uh, what um, Taylor's reporting today. We heard, we've heard we heard from Lloyd Blankfein and Goldman Sachs for years that they are, he envisions, you know, he viewed uh, Goldman Sachs as a tech company. So, so Taylor, one thing, you know, a lot of international uncertainty out there. J.P. Morgan, obviously a global wholesale and investment bank. Is there any commentary coming about how they feel about their global business, their non-U.S. business? Yeah, you know, we have not heard, and this is to my relief, <laughs> any comments about Brexit. <laughs> right. Um, so we're not getting any of those yet. I think they're really focused on, as I mentioned, in terms of responsible growth, efficiency ratios like ROE and sort of how to, even in times of uncertainty and perhaps some global uncertainty, how to still maintain that balance sheet and those efficiency and profit ratios. So they're bringing not to totally nerd out, keeping that ROE, that return on equity. Paul, you you know what that is, Tom. You know what that is. Really? Keeping that at 17%. It was interesting, though. We spoke with Mike Mayo. He covers JP Morgan. What did he Wells. say? He was saying that that ROE is below where they were pre crisis when it was 26%. But on a risk adjusted basis, they have lower risk. Okay. So a 17% ROE is still good. Don't compare it to right. where it was pre crisis because that was a different regime shift. Taylor Riggs, we got to go because the ratio clock just went off in our interactive broker studios. <laughs> if you quote five ratios in an interview, you are done. Taylor Riggs at the JP Morgan conference today with just her wonderful uh, academics there on these dynamics. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.